transform us by your glory. If the slide looks familiar, hopefully it will be. It's the same slide. <laughs> I poached. Uh, okay. Here's my thought. Our transformation is possible because God, being gracious, has provided us the unmerited favor of having a relationship with him. All right, let's review these uh, characteristics again. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7a. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, that is, with Moses, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful. That should be graceful here. Slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth. He keeps faithfulness for thousands and who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin. And then, of course, he goes on to describe his government, thinking about his grace. God operates both in grace and in government. Um, and we're just talking about God's characteristics here as far as they extend to us and allow us to have a relationship with him. Okay. Uh, you might as well turn there, I guess, because that's Exodus. Here I am. Exodus, uh, 34. We just looked at. I just want to emphasize this as we, uh, actually look at the, the context somewhat of this statement. We covered it a little bit last week, but, uh, I think it's important that we see how uh, God was establishing his relationship uh, with Moses, certainly, uh, with him individually and as a representative of his people and uh, with the nation of Israel as his people, his special possession. So just to uh, emphasize that and We'll look back at just a few uh, verses in uh, chapter 33 and uh, where after, again, the Lord telling Moses about how he was going to uh, provide for them, an angel go before him in verse 2 and God would drive out the uh, the possessors of the promised land. And so he was describing for them what that promised land would look like, land flowing with milk and honey, etc. And um, recognizing, the Lord recognizing that these folks, this nation now of Israel, of course, God initially established his covenant with Abraham, an individual, and then Abraham's descendants, his family, uh, the patriarchs, and then as they were in uh, in Egypt, those 400 years, they uh, developed into a nation. So the, the uh, 
up to now, we are in, in this book of Exodus, we are shown how God is dealing with not the individual uh, person, uh, Abraham, not one, one person called out, not even a family called out, but an entire uh, people, an entire nation now he's dealing with. And so he recognizes that this nation is going to cause him trouble. Okay. It's not like anything that, that the people of Israel did or that Moses did individually that took God by surprise as he sought this relationship with them. Uh, so verse eight, uh, said, so it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, all the people rose and each man stood at the tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. Verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. The Lord had established an individual relationship with Moses who could be called the friend of God. And um, then verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet I have said to you, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. You'll see that several times in this chapter about God's grace, that that uh, these people, Moses himself and the people of Israel uh, found grace uh Verse 17, then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And then, of course, we have Moses wanting to see God's glory, God giving him a glimpse of that as he passed by while Moses was sheltered in the rock and that all that precedes God's declaration of himself that we have just read. So our emphasis this morning, our meditation is on the graciousness of God. And uh, here's our definition. Since this is somewhat of an ongoing word study, I'd like to somewhat define our terms. Uh, the Hebrew word here, uh, Gracious, it of course is an adjective. It's hachnu, and uh, is used 13 times in the Old Testament. And interestingly enough, always describing God, gracious. It means showing favor that is, of course, unmerited favor, as we think theologically, uh, unmerited favor or kindness. Now, in the New Testament, interestingly enough, you don't see the adjective gracious used much, uh, a couple of times in some translations. But, of course, we do see the noun form grace, grace, cherish in the Greek. I think over 160 times in our New Testament, we will find that used. Uh Noun, of course, is something that is possessed or given, something that is shown to others. 
and what is given is unmerited favor or kindness. So we are going to look at the fact that God's graciousness is known by both revelation as we have rehearsed in our minds again in Exodus chapter 34. God revealed himself. He described himself. He gave himself these names, these titles, these characteristics that we are considering these several weeks. So that's by revelation. God said he is compassionate or merciful. God said that he is gracious, that he's slow to anger, and these other characteristics that we'll consider in the next few weeks. Um, and we, of course, get that we know that that is God's character because of experience. We have experienced God's unmerited favor, God's blessings to us, God's gifts to us. You might even say God's blessings to us. All those in, are included in the idea of God bestowing grace upon us. And so we have that experience in our lives. Um, experience of the people Israel is summed up in Nehemiah chapter 9 for the end of the historic, historical, chronological uh, history of the people of God. As we saw him, him starting out with his relationship well, how did that go? You know, I mean, was it all just, uh, you know, smooth sailing? They understood God's, uh, that this, this was God's characteristics. And, uh, so they were just fully obedient and just enjoying God's wonderful provision. Well, no. And Nehemiah, uh, rehearses that history here and, uh, what I would consider the cliff notes, if you want, if you, uh, don't want to read the entire uh, New Testament, but you want to know just, well, what are the high and low points of, uh, this chronology, this history? Old Testament. Hmm? Old Testament. Old Testament. Did I say New Testament? I heard New Testament. I'm sorry. You're listening too closely. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. I appreciate any correction. Yes, thank you. Yes, very good. Old Testament history summarized. Cliff notes in Nehemiah chapter 9. As the people have been they were in exile and they're brought back and they're rebuilding uh, the walls and, uh, you know, getting reestablished in the land. Uh, they have kind of a great revival there brought on by the reading of the book of the law. I think it's interesting that they read the book for uh, one-fourth of the day. In our meeting yesterday, it was emphasized how important it is for us to be saturated with the word of God. Well, here they got a good saturation, a good bathing in the word of God for one-fourth of the day. I don't know if that means just daylight hours or whether it was 24 hour day, but it was, it was a good time. And then for another fourth of the day, 
Because they had considered his word, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Okay, we're just going to hit just a, a few of the things that point out God's relationship was based upon his characteristics and not theirs. It wasn't their obedience that allowed the nation of Israel to have a relationship as God's uh, particular possession as his people. Verse 17 says that as, well, if you go back to verse six, verse 16, just as God had described them in Exodus chapter 33, but they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. Uh, they refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Relationship was based not on their works, not on anything that they've done, but on God's own character. And then as a reference, we'll drop down Well, verse 30 in this chapter. Again, after going over more of the history, now they've entered the land and they had times where uh, they were not so good. And God would punish them by allowing their enemies to come in and rule over them for a while. Of course, he would send them deliverers, as we see in the book of Judges. And then... Uh, Verse 30, yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Um, just to uh, take a little divergence back. So because uh, my section, I was supposed to talk about God being merciful and gracious. As you have already heard, my emphasis is on the aspect of his grace. But to get your all, you know, little grace cells moving as you're sitting there uh, listening, hopefully, Hopefully as closely as David. <laughs> uh, what is the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy, you don't get what you do deserve. Grace, you get what you don't. Very good. Excellent. Now, I will tell you that at least I don't see what we're doing here in these several weeks as just parsing out these terms and trying to separate them into different boxes and these types of things, because in some ways, these terms are a little synonymous. It's difficult to separate God's compassion from his mercy, which, by the way, in the Old Testament, the the word for compassion that we went over last week is more oftentimes translated merciful than compassionate. So be it. Uh, and it's tough to separate that, except as, as Tim 
just uh, very ably define for us these terms because there there is a difference. There is some differences between these terms, but they form the whole of God's character. And uh, so we need to think about that, that these, as we're looking at these characteristics, that yes, they overlap in some ways they're synonymous, but they all reflect uh, a different uh, facet, if you will. We're looking at the same jewel uh, that has many facets. And uh, so as we consider that, we don't want to lose sight of the entire jewel. We don't want to be just focused on one facet when we can see the entire thing and realize that this is God's character. Okay, New Testament now. John 1. For the guys that were here yesterday, this is somewhat of a repeat, but I don't think you can go over John Young. <laughs> you can't go over John Young in some places. Uh, you cannot go over John chapter 1 too many times. Uh, and we had a very good exposition of this scripture yesterday by our brother Trent. And, uh, so let's, uh, let's, well, I'm going to read the first five verses because they're just amazing. Anyway, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not comprehend it, but verse 12, one of those great uh, verses, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, as we considered this morning, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is the one of whom I said, He comes after me. He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Remember, our thesis this morning is about relationship. This is relationship. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there, by the way, of course, is tabernacled with us. Takes us back to the book of Exodus, of course, as we think about God tabernacling there, God making his presence known in all those things we see in the tabernacle, some of which we looked at this morning as well. But what a relationship. 
to them, to those who received him, to those who believed on him, to those who accepted of his graciousness, he gave the right to become children of God. We often talk a lot about rights, you know. This is the right. This is the right right. (laughs) This is it. By believing on him, we have a relationship, an eternal relationship. We become one of his children, not just for time, but for eternity. So how is that possible? Well, it's possible because the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, was full of grace and truth. Now, I'm going to leave the truth part. I think my brother Timothy has that, as I recall. So I'm going to leave that fullness to him. <laughs> He'll describe that more fully. Uh, but full of grace. Everything that he did, every word he spoke, every action he took. And this is this is the one that gets me when I think about it. Every motive that he had, every motive he had was to show God's unmerited favor toward us. Unmerited, absolutely. And grace for grace. John Nelson Darby translates that phrase, grace upon grace. Paul Paul prayed in Ephesians, as we think about Christ being totally full of grace, totally motivated, totally acting, totally speaking in unmerited favor toward mankind, toward his creature. As we think about that, Paul prayed that we would have the fullness of God in us. Wow. Contemplate that for a while. In the Psalms, they would tell you, Selah, think of that. Grace upon grace. Now, um, I'm just going to take a moment here, hopefully not too long. Hopefully I'll be able to get through this. <clears throat> but, um, well, I could skip. Now yeah, I'll give it a try. <laughs> Sometimes these are tough for, for us guys who uh, get emotional. But, uh, okay. The other morning, I was I woke up a little bit earlier than usual, just lying in bed and thinking about how gracious God has been to me. I mean, going to wax a little bit autobiographical here. Don't usually get into this, but we call it testimony. Okay. So, uh, raised in a, as we say, a Christian home, second generation. So we're third generation. Rebecca and I both, uh, assembly folks, grace. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> There's no merit in my, uh, on my part for that. Um, so raised up and under the truth of God's word, grace. Uh, and graced 
by Rebecca. Uh, no merit there, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I don't know why she would choose me. I know why I chose her. <laughs> and Mary takes four children, you know, to outstanding children. Now multiply eight grandchildren. And in his assembly for over 40 years, I've seen more demonstrations of God's grace than you can imagine. Even yesterday, just to take a slice out of time, we had gracious hosts yesterday prepared breakfast. Not a big deal, perhaps, but it's an act of grace. It's an act of unmerited faith. We didn't deserve it. Rare breakfast. We had a great time discussing the importance of God's word, a gracious meeting, focusing in on things that we were given but did not deserve. Okay. Grace upon grace. End of autobiographical. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10 and look at a very interesting thing here because the Lord did amazing miracles, right? When he was here on earth demonstrating his grace, his mercy towards others. Well, I thought about that, you know, and I thought here is one of his greatest miracles right here. Matthew chapter 10, he's sending out his uh, the 12. And what does he do? He gives them, and we're just going to break in here uh, in verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. You know what's amazing about that? He gave them the same ability to demonstrate grace to others. But then what does he say? I mean, did they merit that? Yeah. Unmerited favor. Freely you have received, freely give. I had a reference down there to Acts chapter 3, very famous episode, of course, in the life of the early church. And we see Peter carrying out that command freely you have been you have received freely give of course uh peter and john were going up to the temple and there was uh, a beggar there asking for alms they showed compassion to him they showed grace to him and what does peter say he says in verse six of chapter three silver and gold i do not have But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know, the amazing thing about God's grace, there's so many amazing things. But one of the most amazing things about it is that he allows us to be co-laborers with him. He dispenses his grace, his graciousness through us to others. That is amazing grace. But remember, freely given, 
Freely received, freely given. Okay, here's another one of those things that I think I said last time. I'm going to run through these quickly. Uh, so be listening quickly, right? Okay, so God's graciousness is saving. Ephesians 2, 4, 9. You all know those verses. Uh, anybody want to quote just maybe even part of it? Ephesians 2. Or, or read it. <laughs> yes, go ahead, David. Thank you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of words, lest any man should boast. That's good. That's, that's fine. Okay, you're going to go? No, I, I was just, that wasn't the first one. All right. Oh, that's okay. That's good enough. Uh, and with a nod to, uh, those who are of more, you know, God's sovereignty thing. God's grace is sovereign. He has, shows mercy on whom he will show mercy. Uh, we can look at Romans 9 real quick just for that. We've got a little bit of time left here. Uh, okay. God is sovereign in his grace. Uh, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he said to Moses, we have Exodus 33, interestingly enough, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. So yes, sovereign grace or sin abounding, I think are one of our hymns is, uh, Absolutely accurate theological principle. But who is that that he is? Well, I don't know. I think maybe chapter 10 goes along with this in verse, uh, uh, we'll read from verse 8 there. Uh, but what does it say? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you are accepting of God's free gift, in other words, as uh, described uh, in the Gospels and in the epistles, if you accept God's grace, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, yes, he has sovereign grace that's available to all. Second uh, Corinthians chapter... 12, you know, these verse all being, uh, and this is interesting to me because as far as I know, uh, as far as I could tell, this is the only time when our Lord specifically used grace. Used a lot of other things describing his grace, but so Paul had uh, this uh, physical malady and um, verse 8 of Second Corinthians chapter 12, he said, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So his grace is sufficient even in or most especially in our weaknesses. It's sanctifying. Love this part here. Uh, Titus chapter 2. I originally had this under schoolmaster, but that didn't quite do it. Chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Uh, That's interesting. God does bestow gifts upon all. The very gift of life. Is God is a demonstration and an aspect of God's graciousness. Anyway, bring salvation to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, gave. Man, what a powerful word. And you want to do a word study, just do a word study on, on all the things that God has given. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So I'm carrying out verse 15 here because we're speaking these things, exhorting and rebuking with all authority, and hopefully you will not despise me for doing that. Okay. Grace teaches us. It's up to us to learn the lessons, but they're here. He sanctifies us. We have been sanctified positionally. We are being sanctified in our experience. Grace is sustaining Hebrews chapter 4, regardless of what we're going through, and we all go through trouble from time to time, seeing then that we have a great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We thought about him as our high priest already this morning. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, to God's gracious throne, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, What is it that keeps us from being transformed to God's gracious character? We said at the outset, our purpose of our going through these characteristics is so that we might be transformed. We have a relationship. He wants to transform us through that relationship. What is it that keeps us from being? Well, I'll give you just a couple of my ideas. I'm sure I was going to have this open up for discussion, but... For time, I'll just tell you. (laughs) Uh, How about a desire to be comfortable? Uh, You know, we have our comfort zones. And um, 
I'm not so good at freely bestowing what God has freely given to me sometimes because I think, well, I'm kind of comfortable with what I have. So hold on to it. How about pride? Pride is the one thing that God detests almost above all things. There was a commercial back here, you know, uh, a guy by the name of Hausman, wonderful voice. And he was advertising for a stock firm. And he would tell you that, all right, so Smith Barney. And they make money the old-fashioned way. They earned it. <laughs> and by golly, we've earned it, right? We've earned God's favor. I've earned what I have. It's all been given to us. No pride involved. Let's see. I got one more, I think. Ah, this is made different. I just don't know how to do PowerPoints very well. But anyway, we don't trust God. We don't have faith. We're going to hold on to what we have. Uh, Our time, our possessions, our testimony we won't give out the gospel because well we don't have enough faith we're not gracious so what's the solution here well i don't think i put that up i'm going to close with this thought and then we will sing uh he give us more grace i think it's 606 608 okay First Peter. Oh, by the way, I have to just throw in this one additional one. If I don't, um, I missed it. What is one of the most difficult ways that we have of showing grace? And that is through our talk. It is so easy to be ungracious in our talk. Well, first Peter chapter two is the remedy to that. Therefore, laying aside all all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if or since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We need to have gracious. So what's the solution when we think about why isn't it that we are more, not more gracious, not more giving, even to those who we deem not to be deserving? Chapter 5 and verse 10, Peter ends with this thought, really kind of a little prayer, I suppose. He says, but may the great, the God of all grace, he's the God of all graciousness, the great giving God, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Let's pray that. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for your the way that it reveals your character to us. We pray that we might indeed be conformed to your character, that we might indeed demonstrate grace to one another. 
and to the world around us, that we might impart your gifts that you have given to us, particularly and most especially the great gift of eternal life, that we might spread the gospel, that we might give the good news of your wondrous grace. We thank you that that grace has been demonstrated through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we pray in his name. Amen.